0: Welcome back. To the Amala Tierra podcast. And as summer draws officially to a close, we wanted to assess what state the underwater ecosystems remain in after increased traffic and check in to see how the Balearic water quality is faring. Last year, there were five marine heat waves in the Balearic Islands, and it was also feared that that may have caused mass mortality events. We kick off today's episode in Parma, in Mallorca, with director of the Marias Foundation, Aniel Esteban. Aniel, thank you so much for having us here in your offices
1: very happy to welcome you i'm very happy to take part in your podcast
0: so obviously last year we saw these five marine heat waves how is it looking this year in comparison
1: well if anything it's looking at least as bad as last year if not worse uh, the warming the gradual warming of our waters is unquestionably the biggest threat that the marine life uh, has in these islands. We um, have started to see the effects over the past years and they are becoming more and more intense in the form of the death of corals and gorgonians, which is a kind of soft coral that grows on the, on the, on the walls, on vertical walls, and they are filtering animals they are very, very susceptible to higher temperatures. We have started to see the impact on some sponges, which are also dying. We know that a higher level of temperature also leads to an increased mortality of the seagrass meadows of Posidonia, which, ironically, are our biggest ally to protect us from the impacts of climate change. So higher, warm, higher temperatures in our waters are linked to a higher mortality of Posidonia, which are our biggest ally to fight climate change. Um, higher temperatures in our waters can also help to spread the um, uh, invasive species, the species which were not common in these islands, and that then become and find um, a favorable context and environment in which to grow and spread with um, unintended and unknown consequences. So altogether, this makes a very, very dangerous cocktail um, uh, the Mediterranean uh, within all the all the seas and oceans on our planet is the one that is warming up at the fastest rate um, in some compared to other regions of the world the Mediterranean is warming up twice or three times faster than other corners of the world so this poses a massive challenge and our um, obviously we know, about climate change. We know about the impacts of climate change. This is an issue that has been going on for decades. But what we might not realize sometimes is that um, apart from reducing carbon emissions, apart from Promoting an energy transition to a renewable um, source of energy, which we know what what we have to do to reduce carbon. What we often forget is how we can adapt, and what we often forget is that having a natural environment in an excellent state of conservation is a guarantee, is an insurance to be able to cope with the uncertainty that climate change poses upon us. How so? How does the marine environment help us to do that? Well, if we have healthy fish populations, then we have a bigger stock of individuals with a higher genetic diversity, which might allow this uh, fish population or any other kind of species to adapt and to respond to some of the challenges. So, uh, healthier and larger uh, populations of uh, fish or invertebrates um, or or, uh, seagrasses can help uh, find solutions through genetic diversity, through spreadle, through uh, changes in behavior. There are always different individuals within some fish species. Some of them might have more of a resident behavior, and they are not explorers, and others might be explorers. So if you have a healthy population, then you uh, increase the chances. You have more, more aces, more cards to play with in this uncertain game that we are facing which are the impacts of climate change and that means having more biodiversity having healthier marine ecosystems. If you have your marine ecosystems in a weaker state in a a poorer state of health, with fewer species, with fewer genetic diversity, uh, the chances to be able to find a solution diminish. Therefore, this is this is um, this is what we have to do as part of our response to climate change. We need to invest in having a marine and coastal environment in the best possible state of conservation that we could achieve.
0: You met up with the president of the government of the Balearic Islands and Marga Proens, minister of the sea and water cycle earlier this month, and I see that you discussed the Blue Deal, which would obviously mean that 1% of public budgets are earmarked for marine conservation. Can you give us a little bit more depth on those plans and what they actually entail?
1: Yes, um, we believe that um, the Balearic Sea, uh, we believe, and it's a vision which is shared by a, a broad segment of our society, the Balearic Sea is uh, critical to the economic prosperity of these islands and to the well-being of its citizens, no matter if they are tourists or if they are residents. It's a key asset that sustains the economic prosperity of key industries, such as, for example, tourism or fisheries or the boating sector. Uh, Therefore, we need to invest in it. And the irony is that whilst the Balearic Sea and this natural asset, the marine and coastal ecosystems, and all the services and goods that they provide us, uh, is um, contributing massively to our economy. What we give back, what we invest back, is very little. So we need to put this right. What are the five key commitments and measures that we are asking politicians to take on board? The first one is declaring at least 10% of the Balearic Sea as a marine sanctuary. That is the highest level of protection that can be attributed to a a surface of the sea. The second um, commitment that we ask politicians to take on board is to focus on sustainable fisheries. There are already some good examples and pioneering examples of sustainable practice in the fishing fleet of the Balearics and I think they are a reference to copy and to um, replicate across the Mediterranean However, we still face a challenge uh, in terms of um, fighting illegal fishing and poaching and commercialization of fish which should not be uh, sold. For example, there are a few actors within the recreational fisheries that still sell their product illegally to restaurants, and there are restaurants that buy it. There is... An amount of fish which is taken from our waters, which is not properly recorded. And if we don't know how much fish is taken from our waters, we are not able to manage it.
0: Can we just, before we move on, I mean, you know, I've seen obviously the news articles about the tuna industry specifically. And obviously the throwing back of the dead catch and obviously the size of the fish that are taken. And, you know, obviously this has been... Not a problem, just for a week or two. It's been going on for years, and and it's been highlighted in depth, you know, on, on frequent um, occasions. And I, you know, what is the solution to that? I mean, how can we enforce restaurants not buying um, that that cat and people being perhaps a little bit more sincere about their commitment to actually understanding where things come from that land up on their plate while they're while they're experiencing the joys of the Ballyarque Sea?
1: Yes, of course, because I'm um, enjoying a, a fresh. File of locally caught fish is one of the best pleasures that one, one can enjoy in this island. What can we do? It's a bit of carrot and stick. We need to strengthen the, um, the surveillance, the inspectors, the fines. We need to strengthen that because at the moment the levels of surveillance and the, and the human resources devoted to fighting illegal fishing are not enough. On the other hand, we need to celebrate and empower, and give a platform to the restaurants and the fishermen that do things well. Which, in general, we believe and want to think are the vast majority of them. So, uh, we are facing a situation in which just a few rotten apples are tarnishing the image and the reputation of a whole sector, and by default, of these islands. Because... Um, they are allowed to, and no one is challenging them. Therefore, let's work with the fishing sector, recreational and professional. Let's work with the restaurants, with the hotels, to celebrate and empower those that are doing things well, and for them to be proactive in fighting those rotten apples within their sector. Because at the moment they have remained silent. We're in an island is small, is difficult to expose someone who probably will be related to someone you know, but action is needed.
0: But is it really down to the hotels or the restaurants or is it, you know, down to more, you know, marine... I mean, obviously we have marine protected areas and obviously they do protect the species and, you know, replenish the supply of the ecosystem and the species. But ultimately, you know, the no-take zone is not is not really big enough to, to wipe out what happens in the summer when there's this demand for, oh, I want to have a lobster for lunch.
1: Yes, obviously, um, well, it is... There is a problem in the sense of the demand. I mean, the demand in these islands for fish and seafood is is massive because the population of these islands uh, increases dramatically over the the high season, which for good and bad reasons is extending through the year. And this means that at the moment one out of every ten fish consumed in these islands is local. So only one out of every ten. This means that if the Balearic Islands had to meet the demand of fish uh, f- through local local supply, um, by mid February we would run out of fish. So, at the at the le- at the rhythm of consumption that exists in these islands, taking into account that there is a huge demand fueled by tourism, then uh, by mid February we would we would run out of fish because the, the local stocks don't give more. That this does this mean that the local stocks are overexploited? Not necessarily, it's just that they don't give more. The Mediterranean are not uh, highly productive waters as the ones we find in the Atlantic. We don't have huge stocks of mackerel or herring or cod as we can find in the Atlantic. So the Mediterranean fisheries are mixed And this, in a way, is rich and diverse because it provides us with more than 100 different species which can be commercialized. This is amazing. You go to a fish market in in, in Ibiza or in Mallorca or in Menorca or or in Formentera, and the diversity of fish is huge. Probably it's three or four or five times more than the ones you find in the UK or in the Netherlands or in Sweden. Nonetheless, the fish that is most consumed in these islands... Is salmon and as we will know salmon doesn't exist in doesn't swim in Balearic waters so um, this I think this perfectly illustrates that the fish consumed here doesn't always comes from here but um, so I think we have I think we have an opportunity we have um, we have a, a rich diverse uh, fishing fleet that provides uh, wealth of uh, species and a wealth of um, cooking possibilities. And I think we need, there is lots of potential to add value to the local fish product. There is lots of potential for fishermen to earn very well. I believe they earn pretty well already, fishermen, because they are a sector Whose competition has gone down, so they are, th- there are fewer fishermen, so they have less competition. The fishing pressure in the Balearic waters is probably one order of magnitude less than the one we find in Spain, and hence um, the Balearic waters are in relatively the, the, the Balearic waters are in relatively healthier state than the ones we find in the Iberian Peninsula. And this is a, an advantage.
0: So, obviously, Parliament has confirmed a strong interest in, in making this deal possible, but how likely is that to happen? And if so, you know, when would it actually be implemented? Because it feels very short-sighted, as you pointed out, that this, you know, economic battle against, um, you know, versus conservation, I mean, the two things do not exist, you know, one without the other, as we know. So, I mean, how quickly would something like this happen?
1: In our view, it could happen within two political cycles. If the political cycle is four years, let's give it two um, political cycles, that would be eight years. That would take us to 2030, 2031. And 2030 is the date by when we have committed to have at least 30% of our seas protected and at least 10% of our seas highly protected. The Balearics is doing pretty well on the first goal. We believe the Balearics will have more than 30% of its waters protected by 2030, but it's doing very badly on the second objective, on the high protection. They only have uh, 0.4% protected, of the Balearic Sea, and if we take into account the Balearic waters, that's that those that are managed only by the Balearic government, because it's a bit complex, the sea around Mallorca, Menorca, Ibiza and Formentera, it's managed by the Spanish government, but the sea that falls within a hypothetical line, an imaginary line that you would draw around the islands, falls within the jurisdiction of the Balearic government. So within the Balearic government waters 1.7% are already highly protected it's six times less than what we need to reach the 10% by 2030 it's feasible to jump from 1.7 to 10% in 4 to 8 years we believe it's possible it is more difficult to jump from 0.2 0.4% of highly protected waters to Uh, 10% in only eight years, and this is the the challenge for the Spanish government, but that's why we are working um, very closely and we are demanding the Balearic government to take the leadership on this, because the Balearics has the potential to become a reference and a leader in marine conservation, so if the Balearic government moves forward and increases the highly protected areas in the next four to eight years, Then the Spanish government can follow through, and then we have a great model to showcase to other regions in Spain and the rest of the Mediterranean that investing in marine protected areas pays off, that it's feasible, and it's beneficial for multiple reasons, to tourism, to fisheries, to the nautical sector, to the well-being, to leisure, to multiple activities, because um, spending time at sea, it's much more satisfactory when it's full of life than when it's not
0: this all makes perfect sense. And ultimately, you know, you're just trying to keep the economy healthy. Obviously, we saw a massive um, crisis in 2020 and and even 2020-21, which obviously made a very strong and um, promising comeback. But, you know, I think what would 1% of this um, public funding mean you know, in terms of like how much money would be pumped into conservation and, and how, you know, how would that money be spent?
1: Yes, um, if we don't have money, we are not able to put into practice all the measures that we need to protect our seas. That's why we have asked for 1% of our budget to be invested in marine conservation without taking into account all the costs of water infrastructure. Because the costs of water infrastructure and cleaning waters are massive. And what we are saying is 1% for marine protected areas, for monitoring programs, for sustainable fisheries program, for conservation plans, for vulnerable habitats and species. And that's where this 1% needs to go. If you need to build a wastewater treatment plant, then that's a separate budget. How much is this 1%? If we take into account previous uh, budgets... Uh, of the Balearic government, which are around 5,000 um, million euros a year, then we're talking about 50 million. Between 50 million and 60 million a year should be invested in marine conservation. And people will say, wow, that's a lot. Well, that's the, that's the cost of one of the mega yachts that, 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 that sails around these islands. That's the cost of just a small share of, of some of the uh, moorings that are how much they are worth in a nautical club, or that's just a handful of chalets and villas in Ibiza or in Palma or in other locations. So let's put things in perspective. It's 50 million divided by four islands, it's 12.5 million divided by three topics or four topics is three to four million per topic an island. It's not unreasonable to invest three million in marine protected areas only in Ibiza. It's not unreasonable to invest three or four million in sustainable fisheries only in Ibiza, and it's not unreasonable to invest the same amount on conservation plans for habitats and species like corals, gorgonians, sea turtles, uh, rays, sharks, and seahorses, and seagrass, and many other vulnerable species, which are key pieces of the puzzle to protect our sea and to mitigate the impacts of climate change, so it's not unreasonable to put this money. What is unreasonable is not to do it. So we, we need to change that, that perspective. We need to realize that 50 or 60 million a year on marine conservation is actually, I would say, the very minimum we need to start getting things right.
0: Amazing. I I think if anyone's going to do that, um, you're the man to make it happen. And I'm, I'm excited to see how that plays out.
1: Thanks very much for your interest. I'm very happy to talk to you whenever you want.
0: We're here with Manu San Felix, an underwater documentary maker, explorer for National Geographic, and marine biologist who joins us live on the line from Manu. Where are you this morning?
2: I'm in the Pyrenees. <laughs> In I'm this wild. moment, I'm surrounded by mountains, not by the, the sea, by the met or by the oceans. <laughs>
0: Beautiful. And what are you
2: doing there? Well, I'm spending, uh, after being all my life in the ocean, uh, we decided, my family, my, well, my wife, um, uh, our youngest daughter, uh, to move uh, these years on the winter time to the mountains.
0: It's nice to have a bit of a change of scene. <laughs> (laughs) It's really kind of you to join us this morning. I mean, can you just um, start off? Obviously, we're going to be talking about Macedonia in today's episode, but it'd be interesting to get overview, in your opinion, of the current health status of Posidonia in the waters around Ibiza, including maybe any significant challenges that you feel like it's facing right now?
2: Well, about the Posidonia, we can say many things. First of all, that is an amazing plant that is giving a lot to us, for example, Up to the 80% of the sand we have on our beaches are coming from the skeletons of the millions of organisms that live inside the Posidonia jungle, because we call meadows, but when you go diving and you look inside, you realize that it's more like a forest or a jungle because all the animals and the diversity that is uh, living there. At the same time, if we do a, a balance, uh, we can see that we are still losing Posidonia in spite of this importance that is uh, for our Ecosystem, you know, uh, and we are still losing because mainly two reasons in what is Ibiza and Formentera, the Pitiusa Islands. Uh, first of all, is that something, well, both things, all the people they, they see is that we are losing the water quality, unfortun- unfortunately, uh, the waters from Ibiza and Formentera work crystal clear, uh, an amazing blue color and we see many weeks, uh, months in the high season We when have, we have a lot of people, a lot of boats around the islands that this water is not looking as uh, should be doing normally. Because, uh, well, now for me it's like 32 years that I'm living in the Pitiusas, mm. in Formentera Ibiza, and I have seen how uh, we improve and increase the facilities as the hospitals, the airport, the ports, but I haven't seen an improvement or make it bigger the depuration uh, facilities no the depuration water facilities and i saw how the population is raising up for this last uh, 30 years so now it's extremely important that we need to have in a place like the Balearic Islands, like Ibiza and Formentera, uh, first class water depuration facilities. Something that is uh, logical in a place that is rich and we say that we are living in the first world. So we have to be an example about how we treat and how we manage our waters from our houses and companies, uh, anything else. Uh, so the Posidonia and the other impact is the boat anchorage. Uh, I want to say something very clear. I'm, uh, we need the, the boats visiting the islands. We depend on tourism, but we have to manage. If we shoot back uh, 50 years, uh, probably in Espalmador Island, it was one, two, three, four boats, five, not more. But now we have 400. So it's uh, uh, something about numbers. We are many people, many boats, so we need to manage. So, uh, the impact of boat anchorage in the Posidonia is huge and it's real. And it's not logical. If we are sailing in a tropical reef, who is thinking in dropping the anchor on a beautiful coral reef? No one. So, the Posidonia meadows are our coral reefs for the beauty and for all uh, what the Posidonia, as I said before, is giving to us.
0: I mean, moving on from the boating angle, how crucial is Posidonia in the marine ecosystem and overall environmental health of Ibiza? Maybe there are some specific functions or contributions that you can sort of um, provide us with that, you know, obviously stand out. It's
2: doing a lot of contributions now, uh, I used to say, joking, that is like an athlete with a lot of records. Uh, and I'm going to tell some of the records of Posidonia. Uh, well, I said that is giving up to the 80% of the sand that we, we have of, on the beaches. And this is, this is amazing. Also, if we look at the contribution that is doing to a problem that we have created, that is climate change. And we are already suffering with these very high temperatures in in summer, and we are having very long summers. Uh, still today, it's uh, too hot for the time of the year. Uh, we are, if we look to the Posidonia as a carbon sink, is the most effective ecosystem in nature. One square meter of Posidonia is getting the same amount of CO2 from the atmosphere that 15.15 15 square meters of Amazonas rainforest. And this is amazing. This is hard to believe, but is uh, accurate, calculate, and it's like this, you know. Uh, at the same time, uh, is contributing to the stability and many of the beaches we have thanks to the protection that is doing against the erosion of the of the wind and especially of the waves. In some beaches in one kilometer is decreasing one meter the height of the of the waves, you no know? Uh, so and this is something very easy to understand going back again to talamanca just using a pair of uh, googles a mask and a snorkel and if we go in uh, snorkeling we will see the posidonia reefs that they are thousands of year olds and they have uh, an altitude they are like three, four up to five meter high. It's like a jetty, a natural jetty that is on the sand underwater and is protecting. So if we remove that Posidonia from Talamanca, if we remove that reefs, the beach will be gone. Completely Mm -hmm. sure, and this is something uh, we can see in other places, as uh, the north of Formentera, Ijetas, the famous Ijetas beaches, Espalmador Island. uh, That uh, that when you look in Google Earth from. Uh, from, then you see that is it's like a narrow uh, sandbar in the middle of a huge sea, and how is this sandbar in, in the middle of the sea? So the plane is underwater, Is the protection that the Posidonia is giving. And another uh, thing that is given to us uh, well posidonia to nature is the the habitat It's a habitat for hundreds of species uh, shooting back to the past if uh, in the well some centuries ago these islands were with people uh, living on the islands and getting food is because the habitat that the Posidonia is giving to many species. So uh, a lot of the fish species that have been eaten by human beings living on the islands, it was thanks of the habitat created by this plant.
0: Magical. I mean, I think it's responsible for cultivating or bringing in the Pura minifera, which create pink
2: sand in formentera it's a type of animal that lives in the roots of the posidonia and the color Mm -hmm. is pink and when these foraminifers are dying uh, was up on on shore on the beaches and this is why we have this sand that is a treasure and when you are walking if you remember (laughs) what i'm saying and you stop and you look the the sand from close but close to the water, not inside the beach. If you look at the sand from close, you will recognize uh, the skeletons of the mollusks, of bryosons, of echinoderms. And you will, well, immediately you see, wow, this sand is, is beautiful. And it really is. It's a plant on the land is, uh, in a few years, is going to be going back the carbon to the atmosphere, but not in the mm-hmm. Posidonia because the Posidonia, the carbon, uh, can be there for thousands of years, okay? This is, uh, this is uh, the carbon in the Posidonia, is, uh, as I said to you, it's called uh, blue carbon.
0: Can you talk to us? I know you don't want to focus on the reforestation or the replanting, but can you talk us through the process perhaps of what it takes to actually plant new Posidonia plants? Underwater.
2: Yes, the water? Yes, the planting of Posidonia is beautiful. It's long, but beautiful. And it's starting on... Well, first of all, I don't know if everybody knows that the Posidonia is not an algae. It's a plant, a superior plant. That means it has roots, shoot, leaves, and flowers. And this flower is the... Uh, sexual organ of the plant and the flowerings are happening right now at the end autumn and at the end of the summer in this moment the posidonia fields it's amazing it's beautiful because they are full of flowers something amazing to to see to witness you now and at the beginning of the winter well these uh, flowers as in the terrestrial ones is going to become the the fruit uh, so these fruits that is like an olive and uh, the people they used to call uh, sea olive, uh, they are uh, what's up on on shore. They float when they're released from the plant. They go to the surface and drifting with the wind and the currents and arrives to the shore of Formentera beaches and Ibiza. And then uh, this is uh, starting the end of the winter and the spring and we start for weeks, we are collecting this year we collect around fifteen thousand of fruits. That's a lot, and <laughs> it's a lot of time walking along the shore and after what we do is, is that we germinate uh, these fruits because the inside is the small seed, and then we are getting by the end of June, more or less beginning of July tiny beautiful Posidonia plants are amazing and you see the seed you see small roots and and the and the leaves you know? and when well we have growing in in the ocean in the sea up to September and in September then we we'll start uh, the planting of, of of the posidonia and after we'll do the monitoring so in this moment we have just finished planting uh, close to 10000 plants that is a lot i think is the record in the mediterranean nobody did uh, that much and well uh, and our goal is for the next year uh, is to create a beautiful project is uh, we want to restore and do a, a big a Posidonia meadow in a place that uh, well, we'll, we'll say in the future. And uh, I think it's beautiful to have a meadow that can be tracked and probably in 30 years uh, we can see a uh, a beautiful meadow coming back uh, through restoration and with animals uh, going back uh, to this underwater forest.
0: Wow. And how do you actually physically? Mean, it sounds like a silly question, but how do you, you know, when you're planting something under the water that's already, obviously, under the sea, how easy is it to, to, to plant?
2: Well, it's not easy. <laughs> it's difficult and I have to say that we are testing different methodologies Uh, is affecting of course the sea conditions, Uh, the underwater world is tough because when everything is nice and fine until it's coming a bigger storm. This year with a bigger storm, I still have the pain. (laughs) We lost more, almost 6,000 beautiful plants. Yes, Uh, because well, we know the power And the strength of the waves and the sea when it is uh, uh, a storm uh, taking place. Uh, So we are using different methodologies, Uh, it's uh, also we are trying different substrate it's not the same if we are planting in uh, where it was a Posidonia meadow up to some years that places are the easiest Uh, but when you go to a place that is uh, no rest of the past uh, presence of the Posidonia, then we we use, uh, for example, epoxy, two components, uh, no toxic, o- of course, and we are trying this technique that is uh, working good. It's used a lot in aquariums also. Uh, so, well, it's like uh, it's a work that uh, I think we are going to need some years to go well because we are starting now to do the planting underwater on, on land. We are doing for six, eight thousand of years. Uh, that is what we call the Neolithic, when the um, human beings start to to plant. You know, uh, but underwater we we have a start uh, right now. So it's still a lot uh, to be learned.
0: How do you think that the local community or environmental organizations and policymakers can get involved to support these initiatives? Well,
2: I think in general that is the moment to be working in collaboration all of us and especially involve uh, the local communities so uh, our Posidonia planting project it's open and it's people that is helping but as I said some minutes before uh, we are still learning so we, we need to learn a bit uh, a bit uh, more in order to be uh, including people because we, we got phone calls, emails and people that is coming uh, to our facilities saying that they Want to help, and they they are involved and they help. Uh, but I think it's very important uh, all the protection and recuperation initiatives, not only the your planting, should be involved in the local communities. This is mm-hmm. an. Uh, And I'm saying the normal people, uh, fishermen, uh, nature belongs to all of us and we have to feel nature, to enjoy nature and to have the responsibility of the protection and the restoration altogether. If we want to, we have to recover the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean Sea is, we are losing. It's sad to say, but it's real. But we are still on time. But still on time is that means we have to act now, not in the future. We don't have more time to still say we are on time. We have to act now. And if we want the success, recovering the Mediterranean and have the Mediterranean that it was in Evita and Formenteda in the sixties, in the when the hippies, it was an amazing, rich, and beautiful Mediterranean. We have to be all together.
0: Can people get in touch with you to help you with that replanting and germinating project? Is that is that something we could add into the episode of show notes so that people can come and help or volunteer maybe next? Next summer?
2: Yes, of course, uh, this is, we have our website uh, that is Belmaria Association, Belmaria Association is the way to get in touch with us and we are happy. Uh, We have a collaborating spirit, and and I really believe, and we really believe what I said, that uh, if we want to have success uh, taking care of the Mediterranean around Ibiza and Formentera, uh, we need uh, not to be our project, have to be the project of Ibiza and Formentera.
0: Hmm. What would you like to see as the subjects raised, I think, at the Forum Marino Conference next month because obviously it's a space for reflection and debate on all these, you know, subjects related to the Mediterranean and the Balearic Sea.
2: Well, the Forum Marino is a great initiative. I have the privilege to be involved in the organisation committee. It's an honour for me. I think it's it's a beautiful initiative because it's like uh, for some hours, some days we have the opportunity. To all of us sit uh, all together and concentrate and talk about uh, the Mediterranean Sea in general and the Mediterranean Sea in Ibiza and Formentera. This is something that we have to do more often, is to stop and think because the Mediterranean and the sea is giving everything to us. The oxygen we are breathing in this moment that we are having the interview, also me, that I'm in the middle of the Pyrenees, 70% is coming from below the surface. So if we have life in this planet, it's because we have water. Something that I want to see more in our society is a more ambition of protection, a more ambition of recuperation in general. Uh, it's not the moment to talk about protection it's more the moment to talk about recuperation it's not enough to protect we have to we need the ambition to recover and have the Mediterranean that it was as I said up to the uh, 1960 uh, around the island so uh, this is something that I would love to see in the, in the foro Marino I'm sure I'm going uh, to see and I hope this is going to be a spread in, in the society of Ibiza and Formentera Manu
0: San Felix that is a great way to finish thank you very much for the inspirational words and the
2: words of wisdom thank you very much it was a pleasure and I felt very good thank you
0: influx of boats during summertime here in the Balearics, perhaps part of the solution, as we've been hearing, lays in having less impact on the environment in terms of boat design. Say Carbon Yachts Ibiza are a boat company whose fleet is featherlight and all vessels are crafted by the man who made carbon fibre mouldings for McLaren supercars. Step forward, James Blanchfield, owner of Say Carbon Yachts Ibiza here in Santillaria, where we are recording in the marina for today's episode. James, Thank you so much for joining us.
3: You're welcome. It's nice to be here.
0: So how was summer um, here in the marina at Say?
3: Uh, Summer's been great. We've been busy with introducing the brand, as we do and have been doing for the last few years. Charter-wise, it was less than the previous years. We've seen a, a decline of visitors in Ibiza, but that's been pretty much throughout the med when I'm speaking to our colleagues in Croatia, and Italy, wherever. There has been less visitors in the Med this year.
0: Interesting. And how long have you been working in the world of boating?
3: Well, working since I arrived in Ibiza, which was in, um, in February, 1999. In the boating world in general, I mean, I had a passion for, for boating previously. I, I did a lot of diving, but working really since, since I came to Ibiza.
0: And, you know, before say, what kinds of boats were you actually working with?
3: I was working as a dealer for a UK luxury brand. They build boats from 40 foot right up to uh, over 100 foot. So I did that for 10 years. Previous to that, it was, um, it was another production-built manufacturer. Looking after the clients that then want to buy a new boat, have a mooring. It's very important to not just go out and buy the boat, but to know where you can put it. And we offered them basically a full, full after-sales service.
0: So when did Say start for you, and what made you decide to bring that to Ibiza?
3: Say approached us in 2018, and I hadn't heard too much about them. They came over, did an introduction, and told me about their future plans. I then looked into it um, and got very excited about the whole concept of building boats as light as possible. I always had at the back of my mind that it would be ideal to have the perfect day boat without having to yeah, drive around with a lot of cabin space that nobody's really utilising. Therefore, when they approached me, the whole idea of building a light day boat got me excited and they just got me at the right time. They were about to build a new model and um, I needed somebody to get involved.
0: What have you seen out on the water this year that perhaps you know presented some of the biggest challenges that boat owners or people day tripping might be facing?
3: The biggest challenge um, for For boat owners at the moment is is the anchorage it's it 's getting harder to find a nice relaxed location to drop your anchor we 're also faced of course having to anchor in locations that are not disturbing the posidonia that is a a worry for the majority of our guests because they automatically are concerned. So it's always been, I've had a few comments from boat owners saying, what is going to happen about, about all this? Because we're, we're finding less and less places where we can anchor and just enjoy the day out. That's on bigger boats. Mm-hmm. But there are now areas, for example, Tagomago, Uh, where you kind of have to rush over in the morning to find a space over the weekend.
0: What do you see as the solution to that? I mean, long-term plan, what would you like to see implemented that could perhaps eradicate that sort of stress?
3: There are means out and they exist where uh, in Es you already have areas where they have put down buoys where you can anchor up to and other areas in the Balearics as well, uh, which are protected and you're not allowed to anchor there, so they've provided for buoys but it is always a bit confusing. There are many apps to download. Luckily, some of them are in English, the registration process is quite challenging. If you're in a hurry to book a boy somewhere for the weekend, the solution really is, is to educate the marinas, service companies like us, where, where we're willing to help and speak to the client, and, and provide them with a solution where, where they can pick up a boy Uh, a lot easier than what it is at the moment.
0: Sounds complicated. (laughs) I don't know what the solution is. I mean, I guess, you know, there must be quite a decent connection between the community within the marina. I mean, do you have kind of regular events or are there kind of like sharing groups that you perhaps, you know, communicate these kind of issues to and maybe discuss what the solutions could be or?
3: There are various nautical organisations. I mean, there's a list of, of associations, but it's not really getting the message to the, you know, to the end user. And to be honest, no, people aren't really getting together to um to come up with some creative ideas on on how we can make it easier for the boat owners. Our side of the company has has ways and take the stress situation out of it by by providing a captain to go out with them on the boat and then the anchorage that, you know, they can control it a lot easier. But for a lot of people, boating is is the freedom and the tranquility of being able to anchor where they would like, within reason, and enjoy the day.
0: Interesting. I think, ultimately, spontaneity and freedom are you know, the core values of what one would expect from going out on a boat for the day. And if, if you kind of take that out of the mix, then, of course, that, that presents extra logistical plans that need to be implemented and uh, you know it's not the most easy scenario to to navigate but I think some kind of booking system and a a pre-existing and that's actually what Manu San Felix was saying earlier on the podcast and I think for sure you know that wouldn't actually even be that expensive to create that whole system and get an app together or, or find a way. But I think that's definitely a conversation that perhaps, you know, as you said, as we're sitting here looking out across the marina, there's hundreds of boats out there and there must be a lot of people thinking the same thing.
3: Yeah, it needs to be simplified with an app and provide a service. Everybody would be willing to pay during the day or even make the reservation and, and pay beforehand to secure a peace of mind location. It's not that anybody's asking for, for anything for free, it's just somebody yeah. Somebody needs to do it.
0: A good action point to take away from today's episode. I think in terms of the ecological impact of the boat, being so much lighter than probably 90% of the boats that I'm gazing out across the water at now. And I think the lightness of the boat is, is one of the key points on that. And obviously the fact that it doesn't use so much fuel. I mean, you played a huge part in actually designing some of the initial... Um, Say, was it the Say 42? I think 42 that you right initially uh, brought out onto the market. Yeah. How, what did that feel like to have made something a bit less weighty and more
3: flighty? Say Carbon Yacht started with the Say 29, which is the boat that I initially saw in 2018, and then the plan was to build the Say 42, which we then got involved in. We have the benefit of being 50 percent lighter than an equivalent sized boat so when we anchor we can basically put a smaller anchor down and there is less weight going onto the anchor so there's less plowage when it gets windy being pulled through um through the seabed which is a huge benefit um, because that's basically what's what 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 is the disturbance down there and there's less risk so you need less chain Uh, so there's less swinging so you know your radius is is a lot less than having to put down a lot of chain for the extra weight.
0: How does the design and construction of say carbon yachts differ from the traditional boats and how does this contribute perhaps to reducing the ecological impact on underwater ecosystems?
3: Building from the the carbon fibre side you can create a hull design that is very efficient, so the hydrodynamics are on our boat, on on a 42 foot boat, are unique. So basically, the lighter the boat, or the lighter a car, the more efficient it becomes. It's a bit like uh, explaining when a car is driving uphill, Uh, so a car is constantly going uphill and you're accelerating a lot more to push you to go uphill. A boat is constantly driving uphill comparing it to a car. The way we've designed the hydrodynamics of our boat is planing at a very low speed so it's already on top of the water and you can only do that when the boat is light so there's a lot of elements that then come together combined with the carbon fiber that then makes it a very efficient boat because the engines are not really struggling to push the boat forward so the engines are running at at, a, at 20 knots they're running at about 30 load, compared to other boats that are heavy, that are, let's say, bulkier, that need a lot more power to push the boat on the plane. Mm -hmm. When designing the boat, all this thought has gone into uh, putting everything in the right location and just making sure that the boat is 50% less on fuel consumption and therefore uh, less emissions.
0: And less cost, let's face it, in these coming times.
3: And this yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah.
0: I mean when you think about the fact that you know the sanction was brought in to stop the ferries going into Parma um, and obviously they got redirected and now they come into Ibiza. I mean that's a pretty heavy boat that we have going on there and I dread to think you know what the what the beds of Ibiza look like after a summer of literally I think they're coming in and out all day every day.
3: It's a huge industry the passenger ferries I mean demand is there they're also investing in how they can make the boats more efficient as well. You can't really compare it to our industry but it is
0: quite surprising though to see those great big massive houses cruising past and you know thinking about any comment that could ever be made about these kind of boats compared to the whacking great big apartment blocks that seem to sail past it's a it's a very strange beast um in terms of you know collaborating and the kind of education and sharing that you give people when they come in to to go out on a charter like what what information do you share with people?
3: We pre-educate our our charter guests we start first with uh, with the hotel so those collaborators that uh, use our brand for their guests we invite them all at the beginning of the year the new concierge team and we demonstrate the performance the low fuel consumption and we basically take them out on the boat for a couple of hours just to show them why we are different. And then of course it's in the brochures, it's on our price list, the, the benefits of coming on our boat, that it's burning less emissions. We're not taking the fun factor out of it neither. You, you, if you want to go on a low emission speed it's 20 knots and you're burning less fuel. If you want to go full speed you will burn more fuel and still have a lot of fun. <laughs> So you've got both the worlds, you basically choose, so in our brochure it actually says you choose your, your consumption. We, we have a dial on, on the boat so we can calculate accurately on how much fuel is burned throughout the day. Guests are delighted first of all to, to spend 50% less and when you then explain to them on how that happens, we try not to bore them too much. Uh, before they go out but it's it's all in the brochure basically so we are in some of the magazines local magazines on the island as a a a greener boat brand
0: in terms of like longevity and and the materials that you use to build the boat so maybe you can explain a little bit about what happens to that boat after it's reached the end of its time
3: yeah i mean the benefits of uh, carbon fiber compared to mass reinforced boats so grp is that there is hardly any wastage from the carbon mats themselves whereas other boat manufacturers they have different methods there's a lot of brands now that are using uh, an infusion technique and that is already more accurate but of course the benefit of carbon is you can recycle it at the end of its life it can be it can be chopped up Uh, a material out there called uh, forged carbon fiber which is basically uh, chopped up uh, little pieces of carbon fiber which then they use for areas where you can't use the carbon fiber mats. So a lot of, uh, a lot of electric cars now have uh, forged carbon fiber. Um, there are airplanes using carbon fiber. Um, so everything that needs to have uh, strength, um, the, the lightness, and, 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 and keep the safety at the same time. And it can be recycled, yeah?
0: And also you are bringing in this concept of boat sharing, which I love because I think obviously it's like anything with cars, there's far too many cars on the road in Ibiza and obviously Formentera and the rest of the Balearics. and I think if you can encourage that, that's a really beautiful idea that you've come up with. I mean, how does that work exactly? It's
3: it's very basic. It's four parties get together. They buy the boat and split the running costs for the year. That's how, how basic it is. What we want to do, though, is uh, continue offering everyone our service, so they don't have to worry about the maintenance. So the bureaucracy is is taking out of it. We guarantee a mooring, which is very important in the Balearics. It's it'll have it's basically the same service as if you're chartering a boat. There's a captain on board. The fridge is full. The towels are washed. Um, we take all the um, all the uh, troubles uh, from ownership, uh, from single ownership, and put it into uh, three or four owners. There's a calculation uh, there, and um, and they then have a certain amount of days. It's it's usually a maximum of 21 days uh, if there's four people involved.
0: Lastly, I think it would be just interesting to touch on the, the cleaning products you're using because obviously they are a lot more. Well, a lot less toxic for the water and that's an Ibiza-based company or a company that is working specifically with boat companies in Ibiza? Yes, um,
3: the name of the company is La Alternativa Eco, uh, two Spanish guys that are based here in Ibiza. Uh, they introduced us at the, um, at the beginning of last year to one planet, one life and they were doing courses for captains Um, to just get some awareness uh, on the charter boats and how to look after older boats. And uh, all my team went along and and I joined them. And since then we started using their their recommended cleaning products because they are uh, basically, they are not aggressive. Uh, they're all bacterial based, which is great for the boat as well, because it's it's not such an aggressive product. And the most important is uh, the majority of the boats are being washed at least uh, in the summer, probably two, three times a week. Uh, our boats are being washed daily because they're charter boats. Uh, and all that soapy uh, chemicals uh, all ends up in, in the marina uh, um, and eventually um, in the med. So, yeah, we converted. We are, uh, together with a few other companies now in Ibiza, only using these bio products.
0: James Blanchfield, thank you so much for joining us here on the Amala Tierra podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It
3: has. It's been fantastic.